0: Have your Bibles be turning to Psalm one ten, and as you're getting there, we've had a an interesting year. I've enjoyed uh, speaking of the history of the Christmas story through the lens of the Old Testament, and we've really tried to stay in the Old Testament this year, uh, looking at the Christmas promise to see that uh, there is great continuity in the promise of God. What God has promised of old, He brought into fulfillment, and so we looked the first Sunday at uh, First Chronicles and the promise given to David that God would establish him a house. You remember David said, I'm going to build a house for the Lord, for his ark to to be in. It's not right that I be in a palace of cedar while the ark is under tent curtains. And God said, go back and tell David, it's not for him to build me a house. That's not the way this relationship works. I'm going to build him a house, a lineage, a house, a kingly line, and one will come of your seed who will sit on that throne forever and evermore. And so we looked at that, a promise of a kingship and that this coming Messiah would be a great king and how that's connected to the Christmas promise. And then we left the history books last week and went to the Torah. And we saw there uh, Moses and his angle on this, not only that the coming Messiah would be a prophet like him, only greater, but that he would be a deliverer. And we saw that as We come to Exodus 15, and Moses sings this great song that he has written, exalting in the deliverance of the Lord over the forces of the world. And that is a song that was echoed immediately following it by Miriam's song, and both of those echoed again by Hannah's song, and all of that pointing forward to its kind of culmination in the song of Mary who sings a song of triumph in Luke's gospel, the Magnificata, a song of God's intervention, His power, His might. He who is mighty has done great things for me, she says. But it's not just for her. She goes back to the language of Exodus and says He's conquering His enemies. He's righting wrongs. His mighty arm has intervened in time and space through this child. Mary's amazed that she's a part of it. So we saw there uh, that the Torah speaks of this. And uh, if we look today, we want to add another piece to this puzzle. Looking forward, they, they promised a king, a messianic king, and a messianic deliverer. And Moses touched on this idea of a prophet. But we want to see that there was a fuller promise of a prophet coming, uh, excuse me, a priest coming seen in uh, the story of Abraham and in David's writings in Psalm 110. And so we want to begin today by looking at Psalm 110, and we want to read it one more time. Psalm of David, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of their power, the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore... He shall lift up the head. Now that is an incredible uh, short but uh, poignant psalm and one that we want to uh, think about as we lead into this sermon today. But I want us to look at three points. First of all, a prophetic word. David gives us here a prophetic word in Psalm 110. And then second of all, a mysterious encounter. We'll have to go back to Genesis to see this reference that David is making here, an important reference. And then we'll want to close by thinking of how it points forward to the great coming priest that we celebrate uh, entering the world at Christmas. So beginning first with this idea of this prophetic word, we see this Psalm 110, and it's interesting for many reasons. There's much we can say about it. It's a Davidic Psalm. It's the most quoted text of the Old Testament in the New Testament, quoted frequently and importantly as a uh, lens through which to understand the work that God is doing in time and in space. It was accepted as a messianic uh, prophecy from the very beginning. Amongst the Jews, they understood this was a prophecy of the Messiah, a word about the Messiah from the very beginning. So there are many things that we can say about it, but there's something interesting that we want to look at today. A couple of things, actually. First of all, uh, this is a text that is very important because it points to the fact that there's something unique about the Messiah. This is borne out by... An argument that Jesus makes in the gospel of Mark chapter 12, where he quotes this text and asks them to explain it, his challengers, if you will. He says to them, you've heard it said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now he says, David said that. Now David was referring to the Messiah. You all agree on that. And you can almost imagine them nodding their heads right in agreement. Yes, we agree. Then how is it that David says to his descendant, the Lord said to my Lord? In other words, he's saying David is referring to the Messiah, his descendant as his Lord. And Jesus says, how can that be? Now, this relies on a bit of rabbinical logic, doesn't it? That a descendant cannot be greater than his father or grandfather, right? You can't be greater than those who were before you. Why? Because as they viewed it, You were in the loins of your father, and your father in the loins of his father. And therefore, how can you be greater than the one who uh, gave life to you? So again, this is a rabbinical argument, but what Jesus is asking is, if you argue that the Messiah is the son of David, how can David refer to him as Lord? A term of respect and deference. And of course, Jesus is trying to get across the point that there's something unique about this descendant of David. Something very unique, that he is not only the son of David, but the very son of God. And they needed to recognize that. He's giving them hints that they are missing. But again, this is an argument that will come back into this very discussion again in Hebrews. When it's argued, why is the priesthood of Melchizedek greater than the priesthood of Levi? And we'll talk about that as we conclude this morning. But it's an important argument. So first of all, we want to recognize there's something unique being said about this Messiah, the son of David, who will reign and rule on David's throne forevermore. But then there's another little detail given to us here, a very significant detail given to us in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, my friends, first of all, this should be kind of shocking to us. I think we've read enough that it isn't. But if you were a Jew reading this psalm very early on, you would say, now, wait a minute. You're saying the Messiah is not only going to be a king, but also a priest. That is very unusual. You may remember that Saul gets in trouble, loses his kingship over acting in Samuel's place. He gets tired of waiting on Samuel, so he says, I'll just go ahead and do the duties. And when Samuel arrives to find that Saul has done this, he says, what were you thinking? That's in the Rick International version, by the way. (laughs) But what were you thinking? What are you doing? You have not been appointed priest. You are not one who intercedes before God. You are the king. And so again, to put it in this context, this is an unusual thing being told to us. It's something that should be shocking. The Messiah will not only be a king, clearly a king, but also a priest. But notice he's not just any priest. He's not a priest forever after the order of Levi. He's not a Levitical priest. That's what would be expected. But that's not the case here. It couldn't be the case, could it? Because he's not of the line of Levi, is he? David wasn't. And so, of course, it wouldn't make sense that he could be a Levitical priest. There must be uh, some twist to the story, and he tells us what it is. He's a priest not after the order of Aaron or Levi. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Oh, that solves everything, you know? That makes it all easy. Melchizedek, this character we read about over and over and over, all these details given to us in the Bible, right? You would think so important a reference here that the Messiah will be a priest forever after this order we would have more details about it. You say, well, what details do we have? Well, we have to turn back to Genesis chapter 14. And that will bring us to our second point, a mysterious encounter. And I know we have read all these texts many times through the years. They're important texts, but uh, this text is a, a really significant text in biblical theology. And so we need to be very thoughtful as we approach it. So again, Uh, You can imagine just for a moment this reference to this priestly line of Melchizedek, and you might say, well, who is Melchizedek? Now, I think uh, especially the the people Jesus would be speaking to, uh, if he were to make a reference like this, would have been familiar with this passage. David was clearly familiar with the passage. I mean, inspired by the Spirit, he uh, quotes this passage, but it's not one most people are familiar with. And so it's one that's important for us to look at because a biblical thread is sown throughout the scriptures on this very priesthood of Melchizedek. It's not, very rarely comes to the surface, but it's in the background of the biblical story the whole way through. And we have to recognize that. In fact, it only comes to the surface really three different times, but it's an important one. And so we want to look at Genesis chapter 14 to just get set with where we're at in this as we come to this mysterious encounter. Uh, There's been uh, the structure in those days where you had city-states And so each city-state had its own king. And you'll read in this story about the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, different kings that ruled over their individual city. And then there were kings that were over those cities. There were kings over multiple cities, title kings. And oftentimes these were kings that ruled over other kings or just maybe a large city. So you can imagine if our area, East Tennessee, was like that, you'd have a king of Johnson City and Kingsport and maybe Jonesboro but they all pay tribute to the king of Knoxville, right? Much larger army, much larger city, something like that, right? It's the same idea here. You'll see all these smaller city-states that have kings, but there is a title king, and he expects deference and respect and tribute paid. And so as we come to this story, I want you to listen what happens. In the 14th year, this is verse 5 of chapter 14, Kerali Omar... And the kings that were with him, in other words, the kings that were under him, the kings that were paying tribute to him, the kings that he ruled over, came and attacked the Rephaim in Asheroth, Karneim, the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Sheva, Kiriath, and the Horites in their mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And then they turned back and came to An-Misfat, and that is Kadesh, by the time Moses writes this, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazan Tamar, and the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zobaim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidim against Kedaliomar, the king of Elam, the title king of nations. It's going to mention some other kings that are with him, but just for a moment, what's happened with all these uh, rather difficult names of ancient cities and rulers and so forth, you have a, a handful of these kings that have decided they don't want to pay tribute anymore. You now we're paying our 10%, 15%, whatever it is, of all of our wealth yearly to this title king for protection. This is like a mafia racket, isn't it? You pay a certain percentage and you're protected. They won't invade you. You have to join them in warfare and things like that, Uh, but they decide we don't want to pay anymore. The king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, a few others say we're tired of paying. We don't see the benefits anymore of paying, and so Keterli Omar knows you have to set an example. This is the way it worked in the ancient world, isn't it? If anybody rebels against your rule, if anybody says we're not going to pay anymore, you go in and you crush them. You make an example of them so no one else will even think to do it, and so that's what happens. They come to this Moment of battle in the valley of Sidim. And if you go to verse 10, it says, It was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother, uh, brother's son, and dwelt in Sodom and his, uh, and his goods and departed. So in other words... Uh, They've defeated the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. But you'll remember there was someone who pitched his tent near Sodom. Lived a little too close to these wicked cities. And that's Lot. And Lot gets... uh, There's no word that Lot's involved in the warfare, but he certainly is involved in the aftermath of the warfare as they come in and seize properties and goods and take slaves. And Lot is amongst those who are plucked up and carried away. And Abram hears about this. Now listen to what it says. Verse 13, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Marm, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and the brother of Enir, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother, has, uh, brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan He divided his forces against them by night and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. Now, if uh, we were to stop there for a moment, you see, in essence, the story here, right? Abram says, (laughs) you know, Lot has been kind of a little bit of a thorn in my side for a long time, but he's still family. He's still my brother. Still family. I've got to go after him. I've got to go rescue him. And so he does. He takes his 318 men. They ambush the title king and his soldiers, and they take back all the goods that were stolen and rescue all the people, particularly Lot. Lot is particularly pointed to in this text. Now look at verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of sheva that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Omar and the kings who were with him. I want to stop here just one second. So this is all normal. You can imagine the king of Sodom coming out saying, "Uh, you've had a great victory. You've brought our people back. We're thankful for that. Thank you for rescuing our town in essence. But then there's a strange turn in the story here. Then Melchizedek, he's not been in the story before this. He's not been in this history. The king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, meaning Abram, gave a tithe of all. So of all those spoils that he brought back from combat, he gave to Melchizedek one-tenth. One-tenth of all of it. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten, And the portion of the men who went with me, Enar, Eshkol, and Marm, let them take their portion. Now, it's interesting for several reasons, but uh, in essence, the king of Sodom says, listen, appreciate what you've done. If you'll let us have the people back, if you won't take them as slaves, you can keep all the goods. Abram says, no, I've sworn to the Lord, I will take nothing from your hand. I don't want the king of Sodom in his wickedness to go around saying, I made Abraham great. I made him great. Well, Abram said, God made me great if I am great at all in this world. It is not due to the king of Sodom. I will take nothing from your hands. Don Carson said years ago that it's, if you just cut out this few verses on Melchizedek, the text flows perfectly. The king of Sodom arrives and then it says, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. That's meant to show us the significance here of this brief couple of verses that deal with this person that comes out of nowhere. The author of Hebrews says, He came as if from nowhere, and he left and went as if to nowhere. Here he is, this Melchizedek. And look what's said of him. He is the king of Salem. Now, there's several different points that can be made there. He is the king of this area called Salem, Uh, It is the area that will later be called Jerusalem, Jerusalem, a very significant biblical city I think we can all agree on. Salem means peace. He is the king of Salem. He is the king of peace. Kind of interesting and significant. His name, Melek Zedek, means king of righteousness. Kind of interesting. He appears on the scene in the significant moment, as a priest of God Most High, both a king of a significant biblical city and a priest of God Most High, of El Elyon, the God Most High. He also presents Abram with uh, an interesting blessing, which I think we would have to recognize as significant. Abraham accepts this blessing from him, recognizing that he is a true priest of God. And then Abram gives him a tithe. Now that's significant in the moment. But in biblical theology, it is extremely significant, as the author of Hebrews tells us. Why is it significant? Because what is written in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, that in doing this, Abram recognized, in a sense, the greatness of Melchizedek in reference to himself. That he should offer a tithe to this priest... And the author of Hebrews says, do not forget that in his loins at that very moment is the Levitical priesthood. It comes from Abram. So by offering a tithe to Melchizedek, Abram recognized that it was a greater priesthood than the one that would come from him. Now again, that's that rabbinical argument that Jesus relies on in Mark's gospel. But what it means is that the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priesthood. It predates it. It postdates it, and it's greater than it all the way through. And so that is what we see here. Now, there is much that the author of Hebrews will say about it, but those are some important points. On this mysterious figure who comes in in this mysterious encounter and just appears and says, let me bless you, Abram. I recognize that you are a servant of God Most High. He is the possessor of heaven and earth, and you are... Are blessed, and Abraham gives him a tithe. It's a significant moment, a significant moment. And all of these portraits that we see of Melchizedek are significant. And his priestly line he is both a king and a priest, the king of righteousness, the king of peace. He is a priest of God Most High, located in the city of Jerusalem, or what will become the city of Jerusalem. So all of this is significant. We'd have to recognize the author of Hebrews makes much hay right out of this. He says this is one of the most significant moments in the Bible. And yet it's just a couple of verses, and Melchizedek exits the stage and is not heard from again for a thousand years until David writes Psalm 110. And speaking of the Messiah, his Lord, who God will make his enemies a footstool, He says to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever. Not after the order of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek. This mysterious figure whom we know almost nothing about. And yet the author of Hebrews says, let's talk about him. Let's talk about what we know about him. Because there's a lot that points us to Christ in this priesthood. Now, we're not going to go and exposit uh, Hebrews today. That's going to be our job next year. We're going to start uh, Hebrews. We've got to finish up 2 Thessalonians, then we're going to go to Hebrews, uh, and we'll come to these texts. But over and over again, uh, you'll find the message in Hebrews that there was an Old Testament priesthood, but Christ has a greater priesthood. Well, where does he base, what does he base that on? Well, first of all, it's just obvious in the presence of Christ, right? He is the great priest but his priesthood is greater than the priesthood of Aaron. And it goes through many arguments for that, doesn't it, in Hebrews? Arguments like the high priest could only gain access to the very presence of God on one day of the year and only through many ritual washings and all these things that must be done, and he could not stay there. But our priest intercedes for us at the right hand of God continually. Continually. He needs no washings to enter, for he himself is holy. He is righteous. If Melchizedek was a king of righteousness, this king is the king of righteousness. He has access to God always, for he himself is God. He's the perfect priest, because a priest does what? He represents man before God. The prophet represents God to man. The priest represents man to God, intercedes on behalf of man before God. Our king is perfectly able to do that. Why? He's fully God and fully man, the perfect mediator. If Moses was a good mediator in the Old Testament covenant, Christ is the perfect mediator of this new covenant. And so again and again we see this, but it's not just in his priesthood. It's also in the fact that as priest... A priest offers a sacrifice. He himself is the sacrifice. Not a a once-a-year sacrifice. Not a continually offered sacrifice. But a once-and-for-all sacrifice. You see, my friends, what we're being told in these couple of verses is something very significant. There is a priesthood That is as if without beginnings and as if without end and without equivalence. It is the true priesthood, the great priesthood, of which the Levitical priesthood is but a shadow of it, as great as it was. I think often of the way Paul words it in uh, 2 Corinthians, where he says, in light of the, the new covenant, it's as if the old covenant had no glory at all. He doesn't mean it didn't have glory. He just means that the new covenant is so much more glorious that it's as if the old covenant had no glory by comparison. In the same way, the Old Testament priesthood was glorious in a sense, right? God orchestrated, He originated, He wrote it, He instructed it. But compared to this priesthood, it's as if it has no glory at all. Because this high priest is Jesus. The perfect mediator, the perfect sacrifice the perfect priest. My friends, he alone could bring a lasting and perfect salvation to his people. And that's really what we were getting at last week with Moses and this song of deliverance. Moses enjoyed a temporary deliverance, didn't he? The people of God let free out of Egypt. But they're going to deal with many struggles moving forward, aren't they? It wasn't all at an end. But my friends, Christ once and for all settled the battle, won the war. And all of that points to him. And this priesthood points to the one who would come as the perfect priest of God. So my friends, there's another aspect of this coming Messiah. Deliverer, yes. King, yes. Priest, yes. And notice now we've covered the history books of the Old Testament in 1 Chronicles. We've covered the Torah twice, Genesis and Exodus, and the Psalms, the writings, the poetic books. We've only got really one area left to look at as we try to make the argument that the entirety of the Old Testament points to the message of the coming Messiah, and that's the prophetic books. And we're going to tackle that next week. But the point is this, the entirety of the Old Testament points to Christ's coming. It's the purpose. It's not the backup plan. It is the the point, the purpose of what God had been doing from before time began. And uh, it's a way that the Jews often made arguments. Paul makes this argument. If you can point to the Torah and the writings and the histories and the prophecies, it's as if the entire Old Testament speaks. It's interesting to me the way all this came together today As you know, we're just walking through the Psalms on Sunday morning, but we come to Psalm 32 this morning, didn't we? And it starts off with those amazing words of David. Those amazing words Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. David doesn't mean temporarily forgiven, does he? He doesn't mean forgiven and then next week I've got to find a new forgiveness. He means blessed is the man who stands in a relationship with God in which he's accounted righteous, but not on his own standing and not for his own sake. He means one who is counted righteous because it's imputed to him. Look at what he says. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Notice what David is not saying. David is not saying the man who is free of iniquity. For Christ alone was free of iniquity. None of us can claim to be free of iniquity. What David says is, blessed is the man who the Lord does not impute iniquity to him. Sin is not imputed to his account. If you want to uh, turn really quick as we close to Romans chapter 4. And you know the flow of Romans. We went through it at great length. But as Paul lays out in those first three chapters, the argument that none are exempt from the need of Christ. If you are a Jew, you need Christ. If you're a Gentile, you need Christ. For all have wandered, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All are in need, none are righteous, no, not one. None have understanding, none seek after God. All have become unprofitable, none do good. All these things that he lays out and says, all are in need of the redemption that is found only by God's grace. And then he says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And then he wants to explain in chapter 4 that this is not some new creation of Paul. He says, This is the message the Bible's always told you. And he walks through what in chapter 4? The story of Abram. The story of this man who was accounted righteous not by the law, which had not yet come into existence, had not yet been given. He was not accounted righteous because of his deeds. He was accounted righteous because of his faith. He believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. But in that description of the kind of Old Testament argument that Paul is making here, he wants to bolster this case. He says, you know, Abraham's a pretty good witness. Put him on the witness stand. He's pretty strong. But I'm going to bring in another witness. And in verse 6, let me get straight at verse 5. He says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Notice who is justified by God. The godly? No, God justifies the ungodly. You only become godly once He's justified you. And He works on you by His power and sanctification. But God is justifying the ungodly. He says, if you doubt it, let me bring another witness into the witness stand. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Who is the truly blessed man? The one whose sins are not accounted to him. And the one who has another's righteousness accounted to his account? And he quotes the psalm we just read. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And you say, how does that happen? How does that happen? Well, you can turn to Hebrews and read at length of how it happens. But it's all based on these a couple of verses in Genesis and a couple of verses in Psalm 110. This thread of this great king and priest, the king of righteousness, the priest of the Most High God, who comes to offer a better sacrifice. No sacrifice like it in the Old Testament because they had to be made yearly. No priesthood like it in the Old Testament except this one that we see in a couple of places. Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And because of him, David's prophetic psalm here that we read this morning is true. Blessed is he whose lawless deeds are not accounted unto him. Blessed is the man, he's basically saying, who stands in the righteousness of another. My friends, if you stand in Christ's righteousness, you are truly blessed. And we should be thankful for that as we approach this Christmas season. Amen.